Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Leeds Library, the Leeds Library's podcast series in which we talk to members of our extended community about their lives, their work, and their relationship to books, libraries, and literature. Founded in 1768, the Leeds Library is the oldest surviving subscription library in the UK, and throughout this series we'll also be diving periodically into the library's rich history to find out what makes us and our members one of the most interesting and unique cultural institutions in Leeds and the UK. I'm Molly McGrath, the Projects Assistant of the Leeds Library, and today our guest is Professor Susan Watkins. Susan is a professor in the School of Cultural Studies and Humanities and director of the Centre for Culture and the Arts at Leeds Beckett University. She's an expert on contemporary women's fiction and feminist theory, and her research interests are in Doris Lessing, Margaret Atwood, contemporary women's dystopian and apocalyptic fiction, and ageing and gender within the creative industries. She has published widely within these fields, and her latest book, Contemporary Women's Post-Apocalyptic Fiction, published in 2010 by Palgrave Macmillan UK, explores women's post-apocalyptic fiction and its surrounding themes. Firstly, hello, welcome. Thank you so much for being on the, the Leeds Library podcast. You're welcome. Pleasure to have you. Um, before my first, my first question is, before I started researching this podcast, I hadn't realised um, that there were so many apocalypse-adjacent terms out there. And I suppose the primary distinction I wanted to ask you about was between dystopian and post-apocalyptic fiction. Um, but then even within dystopia, there are different categories. And then there are things like speculative fiction and utopian fiction and sci-fi um, and a new one, which I learned recently, which is cli-fi to do with climate change. Um, mm. Can you talk about the differences between these genres? Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing to say really is that I'm not sure that there are any hard and fast distinctions. Um and, and I think really this is partly because, as Jacques Derrida said, the laws of genre are always flexible. So his essay, The Law of Genre, is about how if you set up these rules, then nothing fits perfectly. Mm. So if you pick any one text, it, it will always kind of break the rules slightly or, or exceed them. Um, and also, I think there are commercial considerations around genre. Um, it makes it much easier to publish and market books to kind of package them up in these supposedly tidy ways. Mm. Um, Increasingly currently, I think, um, if you look around bookshops, then you can see the way that different kinds of writing are um, presented in certain ways. So so I think actually genre is to some extent a um, flexible concept, which doesn't mean that it's it doesn't have any meaning or, or doesn't have any power, but I suppose it just means that we need to be a bit aware of it as a category that like many categories doesn't actually ever really completely work. Mm. Um, so having said that, I think that the thing about post-apocalyptic fiction is that there has to have been some kind of disaster mm. that's caused the end of the world as we know it, you know? So, um, that disaster might consist of many different things, you know, some, you know, an asteroid hitting the planet or climate change or um, a pandemic, you know, so there's various different things. And usually in a post-apocalyptic novel, that event is is within the living memory, I suppose, of, of the remnants of humanity that have survived it. Although increasingly, there may be quite a distance between the 
the time period in which the post-apocalyptic novel is set mm. and the event itself. Um, so it can be quite a big distance. Um, thinking of one that I've only read relatively recently, not a woman, not a woman writer, um, a Canticle for Leibovitz, which I which I loved, which which goes thousands and thousands of years into um, an imagined world after a uh, nuclear um, holocaust. Mm. And of course, there were lots of novels mid to end of the 20th century, which are centered around you know, the end of the world imagined as a nuclear disaster. So post-apocalyptic fictions have to kind of have that, I think, as part of them. Dystopias needn't, I guess. So you could have a dystopian novel in which there hasn't been some kind of crisis event like that. Um, I think with dystopias, uh, famously, um, Raffaella Baccalini and Tom Moylan have distinguished between the classical dystopia and the critical mm -hmm. dystopia. So the classical dystopia is the one where everything's completely dark and there's no hope for the future. But the critical dystopia, there's a little bit of hope somewhere within the text. Now, again, I'm actually not sure that that is a completely watertight distinction either. Mm. Um, it seems to me to be very difficult to imagine a dystopian text with no hope at all, because part of the pleasure of them is trying to see the resistance and see the possibility of resistance and hope. So I'm not sure about that either. Um, a term that I think is useful is Atwood's, Margaret Atwood's term, Ustopia, mm. which kind of mixes utopia and dystopia. And for her, she's kind of saying it's about perspective. You know, someone finds the dystopian world to their advantage. And so for them, it would be a utopia. Mm. So it's about where you're looking from, if you like. Um, and she, that word us in the Ustopia, I really like because it kind of says, well, it's down to us to decide what perspective we're taking. Um, so I do find that really useful. And then in terms of the, the distinction between, for example, speculative fiction and science fiction, again, I think the general perception is that something that sci-fi is going to be a bit more hard and techy in its mm -hmm. imagining. But I also think that's probably a little bit, you know, not, not really that helpful a distinction either. I mean, Ursula Le Guin said that speculative fiction is a snobby literary term for science fiction, you know, so it kind of gets out of the, um, it gets writers who usually write literary fiction out of what she called the ghetto of, <laughs> you know, science fiction and its fans yeah. to call it speculative fiction. So I don't know. I mean, I think there's a huge amount going on there. And I think if people find these terms helpful, then fine. But if we want to get caught up in these distinctions, then I don't think that's particularly useful. Um, yeah, so that's probably where, where I'd leave it. I think that it's about the publishing industry, hmm. but also about the nature of classification itself, if you like. Hmm. Well, that I kind of ties into my next question, which, I, I, which is I, thought, I think... Um, in, in your book, Contemporary Women's Post-Apocalyptic Fiction, you, you kind of, you challenge the strictness of these genre categories. Um, and yeah, for the, uh, for example, The Handmaid's Tale, you say is both a feminist dystopian classic and a post-apocalyptic novel. Um, and you talk about the term sextinction, which was coined by Claire Colebrook, 
um, and you, you use this quote here, um, it's precisely here in the genre of the post-apocalyptic that the most tiring gender narratives are repeated. One might say that it is easier to imagine the end of the world and the end of capitalism than it is to think outside the structuring fantasies of gender. There must always be an active male heroism driven by a feminine fragility that appears to hold the promise of the future. Um, and that's from Sex After Life, Essays on Extinction. Do you, do you think that these genres are still helpful and relevant to contemporary women's post-apocalyptic fiction? I guess we kind of <laughs> answered that and, and, and no. Um, but do you think like women's uh, post-apocalyptic fiction particularly um, and its inability or unwillingness to conform absolutely to genre conventions say something about how male dominated the genre is or do you find that um, women's fiction is often more likely to kind of uh, defy these the genre conventions or not fit as comfortably as as men's post-apocalyptic fiction? Mm, great question yeah no I, I think um, it's about that connection between these two terms isn't it um gender and genre which mm. um etymologically have connections um if you go on the oxford english dictionary and do that great thing which i often do of looking at the history of a word and where that word has come from and when it's been used in the past and so on um, they connect that the etymology of both of those terms gender and genre is linked mm. um, and i think the thing is Genre, as we've just been saying, is a way of classifying texts, isn't it? So it's a way of trying to demarcate one kind of text from another. Um, gender is a similar kind of classification system in the sense that it tries to classify people in binary terms for, for the most part, although people are increasingly, and in a positive way, wanting to question that, those kinds of binary classifications. Mm. But conventionally, gender has always been in the past about distinguishing between male and female, masculine and feminine. Um, so genre and gender are classification systems, if you like, that want to pin things down and define things. So I think what women writers are doing when they question generic conventions is actually making a broader point about classification and thinking about how classification works in relation to gender as well. Mm -hmm. So when they mess with genre categories, they're also trying to get us to think about messing with gender categories. Um, and as I said, I think that can only really be a positive thing, because if you think about all those post-apocalyptic movies and texts by male writers, which are about, you know, the man saving his family, trying to preserve his nuclear family and ensure their survival after an apocalyptic event um, and trying to recreate the past as closely, you know, as possible. Uh, so restoring everything back to the state it was in before the apocalypse, if you like, that seems to me often to be the two motivations of those kinds of texts. Then I think it's those things which women writers are wanting to question, if mm. you see what I mean. So um, I guess, you know, that, they, that they're wanting to resist classification because those kinds of classifications haven't been very positive for women in the past. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you, you say that um, in, in men's post-apocalyptic fiction, as, as in written by men about men, um, the heroes are nearly always, yeah, trying to, men trying to survive, men trying to protect women, men trying to rebuild things as they were before, or men who are nostalgic for the world before things changed. And women's post-apocalyptic fiction, on the other hand, um, there's a focus on analysing the ways in which patriarchy and neocolonialism are intrinsically implicated in the disasters they envision. Uh, rather than nostalgia and restoration after such a disaster, they successfully transform and rewrite the apocalypse 
apocalyptic genre to imagine different possible futures for humanity and post-apocalypse. Uh, um, and in this way, it's also an important intervention in the present moment. Um, and that, that's uh, from your book as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, the dif what differentiates women's uh, post-apocalyptic fiction um, from the mainstream or from men's post-apocalyptic fiction? And why is it important to pay attention to the issues that it raises? Mm, yeah, sure. I mean, I think what, what a lot of contemporary women's writing in this genre is trying to do is show how women have got less invested in our current status quo than men. So mm. they're actually disadvantaged by lots of the structures and systems that we've got in place in our present world. So why would we want to restore those after a, an apocalyptic event? Why would we want to hark back to them? Why wouldn't we want to change things and improve things and do things differently, if you like? So I think the message of their, this, this body of work is that it's trying to show us what's wrong with our present society that might have led to an apocalypse. Um, and, you know, how we might choose to rebuild after an event that in a different way that's fairer to women and, and fairer to others who are less privileged in our current environment. So one example of that would be, you know, our attitude to the natural world and Earth's resources. Um, we tend to have, well, we have tended to have the assumption that the um, natural world and animals and the um, environment around us are kind of there for us to use. Mm -hmm. um, and for us to, I suppose it's what people now call this kind of extractive approach to, to the Earth's resources. Um, and in a sense, I think there's a parallel between the way that women have often been viewed you know, not not by everybody and not always, but but, you know, there's often been this approach that women are there to be used, that we can kind of take what we want from them. Mm. Um, and we've seen that increasingly becoming apparent in in some of the horrible things that have come up recently around, you know, sexual exploitation, et cetera, et cetera. So and that that isn't over. It's still a really current issue and, and a really big problem. And so that kind of um I'd call it rapacious to, 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 to use a word um, that's quite an interesting word, mm. a rapacious extractive approach to both women and the climate, the natural resources of the earth, et cetera, et cetera. That I think criticizing that and thinking about how we might reorganize after an apocalyptic event to avoid that is a really prominent theme in a lot of contemporary women's post-apocalyptic writing. Mm. And you, you talk about, um this kind of pervasive idea that we're living in the end times, which is a, mm. a phrase that comes from Slavoj Žižek. And um, I wanted to ask you about some of the context surrounding the popularity of, of post-apocalyptic fiction. Obviously, I guess, as you were just saying, the climate and the extracting of resources is obviously one, but also this idea of, or this question of why, when we feel like we're living through an apocalypse, do we seek out fiction that mirrors that experience back to us? I suppose yeah, I think mm, what you're saying about um, finding a kind of alternative solution. Sorry. Yeah, I think that's true. But also, I think that particularly during the pandemic, I mean, all of these pandemic films that everyone was watching at the start and, and when when a lot of people would have thought that you wouldn't want to see what was happening around you being kind of echoed back to you. But but I feel like it's the opposite. I think it's a way of allowing us to work through the issues raised by the apocalyptic things that have happened recently and by the fact that you know even before the pandemic lots of people felt like things were on a 
you know, worrying trend or in, in, and people were talking about these end times scenarios. So, you know, we've had the pandemic, we've had these dystopian restrictions on our freedoms where, you know, we're not allowed to go out of the house except once a day or see people outside our immediate family, you know, things that would have been unimaginable before. Mm. Um, so we've actually lived through an apocalyptic event and through a dystopian response to that, you know, for our own safety, you know, obviously in, in lots of ways, but it still echoes a lot of those kinds of restrictions on individual freedom that you see in dystopian texts. Mm. And I think reading about this in a fictional form is kind of cathartic. It actually allows us to process the trauma that we've all been through. Mm. Um, and I think recently I've, I was interviewed quite a lot about Squid Games, the um, yeah. South Korean um, Netflix drama, because, you know, people were saying, well, why do we want to watch this stuff? And um, yeah, so again, that's something else that I think is a similar thing. People, people want to engage with this stuff creatively as a way of working through what they've experienced. Yeah, I, I um, there's a kind of I think there's like a, a theory about why we dream as well, which is that it kind of um, you it it prepares you for things that your you, your subconscious kind of views as a threat. And I remember listening to this this BBC Sounds podcast um, about uh, dreaming in the pandemic, and apparently people's dreams about insects that had uh, like people had reported having loads of dreams about insects. And it's I don't know. I wonder if it kind of is a similar psychology uh with with post-apocalyptic fiction it's you're kind of your subconscious brain is trying to prepare you and yeah by creatively kind of exploring disaster scenarios and and how you can respond to them maybe I know I we yeah, are weirdly at the beginning of the the pandemic I was started watching loads of like um uh living off grid videos like I know so much about right now I think I don't know and I think part of it was kind of a, a kind of it's like soothing to to uh explore those um different ways of reacting to these scenarios absolutely and i think the thing is it's also about you know ethical and political dilemmas isn't it it's 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 not just only dealing with trauma but actually working through different well yeah ethical and political responses that that one might you know think through and experience and consider um and I suppose that's the great thing about fiction, that that's what it does. And that's why we love it. <laughs> One of, the, I mean, following on from the, the conversation about uh, genre particularly, but also, I guess, from this, do you think that because of this apocalypse mindset, contemporary realist fiction or, or, or autobiography might begin to take on some of the tropes of post-apocalyptic or dystopian fiction? And um, I think certainly thematically, there can be a lot of crossovers. Um, and I know you talk in your book about ways in which women's post-apocalyptic fiction um, and women writers imagine literature in its place in a post-apocalyptic world. Um, but what do you feel, what effect do you feel the end times is having on literature at large, if any? Um, mm. Yeah, I mean, I think we're just starting to see the publication of literature that responds directly to the pandemic. And there was a good piece in The Guardian about this only a couple of weekends ago, which was looking at some of the more recent pandemic fiction. Um, and not all of that is actually post-apocalyptic fiction, um, but some of it is. So one that I've read really recently is Sarah Hall's Burnt Coat, mm. which is fabulous. Um, 
scary and beautiful and really, really um, mind blowing, actually. Um, but I also think that another thing that's happening now is there's a lot of really weird nostalgia for the past. Mm. Um, some of it not in such a good way. Um, in my opinion. Now, I have to say, I haven't read Jonathan Franzen's Crossroads yet. Um, so this is, you know, absolutely based on what I've read in terms of reviews and stuff, rather than having read the text itself. So feel free to totally ignore my comments on that basis, listeners. <laughs> but, but I think some of that return to the 70s and return to the 20th century I don't know whether it's nostalgia and I don't know whether that's maybe not a good thing. I'm not, I'm not sure. Mm. I, I just think that I don't know. And I also think that actually we won't for a long time see what the genuinely creative and thoughtful responses are to mm. the pandemic. Um, just as with post 9-11 fiction or even with something like modernism as an early 20th century response to the Great War, it's not until really quite a while afterwards that you kind of realise, well, OK, these were the great texts or, or these were the innovative responses. Mm. And maybe some of those responses, like you say, wouldn't necessarily be ones which which address it head on. Mm. So going back to the example of modernism, you know, a novel like Mrs. Dalloway um, doesn't really seem to be that much. Well, no, it does in lots of ways. It is about um, World War One quite directly but the way that it's written mm. is is so innovative um you know maybe it takes a while to actually kind of get to the point where you can say yeah as I said this is the great stuff that really dealt with that with those events mm. so I think we need a bit of distance before we can see what literature is really going to do as a as a direct response to the pandemic yeah I've seen loads of um weird kind of early internet nostalgia recently which I find a bit bizarre because it I mean I, I don't know it sounds like a long time ago it shouldn't for me but um yeah I mean in the grand scheme of things it's really only kind of 10-20 years ago that that stuff is kind of focused on um mm. it's a bit early to be uh looking at it as kind of ancient history I don't know or, or, or like nostalgic I don't know but I think it depends how old you are. So 10 years ago is a lot of years if you're yeah. in your early 20s or even in your early 30s. It's like half to a third of your life. Yeah. You know? and, and so I do think that young people who've been particularly hit hard by the pandemic are bound to do that kind of backward looking. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and there's a there's a chapter in your book, um, Contemporary Women's post Fiction, called The Post-Human Body, um, which draws on Donna Haraway's Cyborg Manifesto. Um, and you say in it, these fictions, which are capable of pushing the post-human body to recognise its alignment with the animal and the machine, are also those that are able to move beyond the dystopian genre into a genuinely new space of post-apocalyptic writing in which conventions of embodied selfhood can be questioned. Um, can you talk a bit about how... Um, the post-human body is so relevant to feminism in post-apocalyptic fiction and um, that was yeah. an area that I was really interested in. Sure absolutely no I think it's about going beyond human exceptionalism really so humans have always tried to distinguish themselves from animals and more recently from machines by arguing that we're unique that we've got traits that make us distinct and superior but I think that attitude is what's led to the exploitation of animals, the destruction of the natural world and the climate. Um, 
Whereas if we accepted that, you know, we're not superior, we're, we're just different and we live on a continuum with animals and nature and our survival is fundamentally connected to theirs, then I think we would do things differently. Mm. You know, I mean, who knows whether it's true that the pandemic was caused by a virus crossing species barrier due to um, the way that humans are um, used to exploiting and eating animals and so on and so forth. We don't actually know if that's if, if that's the cause of, of the COVID-19 pandemic. But but if it is, then 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 that's an example of the kind of um, attitude to other species mm. that post-humanism would want to question, I guess. Um, so, as I said, post-humanism is about seeing the continuities rather than looking at ourselves as these, this superior species. Um, and I guess also fear of the machine is another thing that's such a big thing in literature and such a big thing in dystopias, you know, the machines taking over, this kind of thing. Um, and that's understandable. But I also think it's not really led to us making the best use of technology. There's still quite a lot of suspicion about AI, about um, uh, what technology is going to be capable of, and which kind of means that we don't have those conversations almost about an ethical way to approach it and um, how to actually um, be, be living in harmony with some of the technologies that have developed and some of the um, new sciences that are around humanity and, and embodiment, if you like. Mm. So I think that yeah, we kind of, women writers are also exploring that a lot in post-apocalyptic fiction. There are lots of texts in which there are um, robots or cyborgs or various kinds of visions of, of post-humans. A lot of those texts are really interesting. I mean, particularly something like Margaret Atwood's Mad Adam trilogy, which ends with a kind of new post-human species that's, um, you know, a hybrid of um, humanity as it was before the pandemic that features in that trilogy. It's a blend of the humans that have survived that and also these kind of um, new species that have been engineered in a biodome by a scientist. And the two interbreed and produce this new kind of species that are that is really kind of hopefully, I don't know, it's suggested, I think, at the end of the last book that it's going to do something more... Um, equable for humanity and for the survival of that species that new species so yeah I think um, those kinds of imaginings are thinking about all those issues around human exceptionalism and the problems it's led to yeah I found it really interesting because um yeah I think I've never I don't I think that the the general kind of information or or atmosphere that I'd kind of seen technology and had been always quite a negative one and I, I yeah. saw a, an article recently about Google's kind of head of AI writing being fired for, for writing an article on the the uh, algorithms being kind of racist um, and and you know like tech is obviously kind of a massively male dominated um, area and it, yeah so I thought it was so interesting to see a kind of a take on technology being used in a positive light and important that there are kind of narratives that explore that because it otherwise you know like it or not technology is obviously here to stay um so that's it we, we can't just kind of avoid it and pretend it never happened and you know you hear about as you say these 
these tech entrepreneurs who won't let their own kids have screens and phones and so on. And you kind of think, well, yeah, okay, but we can't just kind of do this Luddite thing where we destroy the machines. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it it ties into like this idea of the, uh, what's the term, the Anthropocene, where we've mm. irrecoverably altered kind of the the natural landscape, um, mm. the, the natural world, um, and yeah, I guess that may as we may as well strive for that to be ultimately a positive thing and not, um, you know. Yeah, we can't go backwards, can we? Really? Oh, yeah. Um, so you worked recently. Um, with a group of young women from Bradford's Bellevue Girls Academy on dystopian and apocalyptic fiction um, and you did a series of workshops with them um, and yeah can you talk about what that experience was like and and what kind of themes came up uh, in these workshops and and I guess I, I'm interested to know were they markedly generation specific did you see that the kind of like the fears and anxieties that were maybe being explored or, or the ideas were really specific to to that generation Mm, it's a great question yeah um well it was a project funded by the arts and humanities research council as part of the being human festival and that festival runs every november and it's about getting the work of humanities researchers out there and engaging with the public and proving that what we do is relevant um so not that we're not just stuck in some ivory tower um And what I loved about the project was how much the young women students enjoyed visiting the Leeds Library. You know, they just loved the space Mm -hmm. and they'd never been anywhere like it before. Um, You know, they were walking around, looking at the books, taking photos, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And we talked about what might happen to books and libraries after an apocalyptic event. Um, So that was one great part of the day. And then, as you say, the other part was doing their own creative writing. Um, based on a kind of um, a prompt around dystopia, apocalypse, that, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And it, their creative writing was amazing. And what came up really strongly was the issues of young women having a voice and mm-hmm. the right to express themselves. And thinking about your question, I was thinking about, well, is that new? Is that a new thing? Or is it something that has been an issue for a long while and I think it's both it's both is and is not a generational thing really because women have often been silenced in the past but I do think that silencing operates in specific ways now especially for younger women so I'm thinking more about you know social media appearance body image um, sexual exploitation you know I, I think that it's not so much literal silencing is it it's more kind of um, a in a kind of internalized silencing about what you can and can't say mm. in in a climate where you might feel endlessly visible actually if on mm. social media etc or feel the pressure to be endlessly visible and endlessly um, available actually mm. so so yeah it was kind of those kinds of things that came up quite a lot um so yeah I think it's on a continuum around the issues that women have often experienced historically speaking but but with a with a inflection that's very much of our present moment I guess that's so interesting I yeah that makes so much sense the idea that in a you know if if a culture is dominated by the visual or or, yeah I think you're right like social media is really um makes us so conscious of how we present visually right um that 
yeah when that becomes kind of a huge a greater part of of the you know everyone's lives it's actually women who are going to feel that most strongly because you know they are what's that like john john berger quote where, where men men watch and women watch themselves being watched or something right right yeah yeah and i think that that does extend beyond women too increasingly um to men as well but i think that the point is that if you have internalized a view of yourself as the object of the gaze then that inevitably puts you in a kind of subordinate position and a subordinate position is a feminized position actually so um it, it kind of it, even if men experience themselves as objects of the gaze it, it's kind of it's a it's, it's a feminine position to be in in the sense mm-hmm. that it's a disprivileged one if you like if you get what I mean yeah that's so interesting I yeah <laughs> and and I, I suppose kind of at the other end of the spectrum I wanted to ask you about um, women and aging um, mm. another area of your current research um, and it seems to me that there's a common thread here with your interest in dystopian women's writing which um, I this is not this is a tenuous link so I hope that <laughs> you agree but you might not um, is to do with navigating and representing the past and the intersection of personal and cultural history um, and of course what we're talking about uh, this great reckoning with the, the frailty and mortality of the body can you tell me a bit about your your work in this area yeah and I don't think that's tenuous at all although it's not something I'd really thought about before in that way so thanks but yeah I'm working in two the areas at the moment. Um, the first one is about getting older women who've left the cultural industries for various reasons, mm. mostly to do with ageism and sexism, back into um, engaging creatively through creative writing workshops. This works. This project has been funded by the ISRF, the Independent Social Research Foundation, um, and it's led by my colleague Dr. Rachel Connor. Uh, with me and another of our colleagues, Professor Jane Raysborough, who's in the media uh, side of things at, in the School of Cultural Studies at Leeds Beckett. And we've had a few workshops over the summer, and we're now working on editing the writing that was produced in them for an anthology. Mm. And what's really striking is how much grief and trauma there's been around ageing for mm-hmm. women, but how that's also been transformed or adapted by the women themselves to become something creative and positive. And that was very much the kind of point of the workshops to be, you know, allow people to address any issues around having been pushed out of the cultural industries that, that they might have experienced, although not always, not in all cases, um, and then enable them to do something creative and productive um, with, with their own creative writing. So that's something we're a project we're kind of just finishing up right now. And then the second thing I'm working on is the way that ageing is represented in dystopian fiction Mm. uh, or, or, well, and speculative fiction more broadly. Um, And actually, there are a lot of dystopian texts that do engage with ageing more than you might think. So one good example is P.D. James's Children of Men, Mm. um, which is pretty typical in that but a lot of these texts represent aging as this terrifying waste of resources, you know, and older people as this big drain on humanity. Um, and alongside that, lots of them imagine the birth rate dropping catastrophically. Mm. And so all these old people are, are, are getting to be a real problem because they're uh, this, um, as I've said, horrible waste of resources when there are no young people coming up behind them, as it were. This is a, a kind of pattern in lots of this fiction. And so the dystopia is, well, what does humanity do to kind of manage that situation? 
Mm, so I'm looking at those, but I'm also looking at some more interesting ones, which do do something more creative with aging in the future and kind of imagine the place of older people in relation to the future in more interesting ways. Because actually what we, we don't tend to think about the future in terms of older people. Mm. So when we think about the future, we tend to think, as the song has it, the cliche, you know, children of the future. Um, and that, that notion of reproductive futurism, that the future always has to be about imagining children and imagining the next generation. And it's, it's kind of quite heteronormative and it's quite ageist, actually, because it doesn't mm. think about, well, older people have the right to imagine a future, too. And they also have the right to imagine a place in that future. Mm. So. So I'm just kind of thinking about issues like that and thinking about how some literature does explore ageing in more creative and interesting ways. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting, the, the link between ageing and post-apocalyptic fiction. And I suppose in a, in a culture where women, I feel like, you know, feel the kind of the burden of ageing more strongly or certainly earlier, um, yeah. this kind of anxiety about the future would also kind of, or a hyper-awareness of the future and a, and a fear of being kind of reduced to uh, a resource um, that can expire would be felt more strongly and, and, and therefore, yeah, well, there is a kind of more of an impetus to creatively find ways to, to deal with that, I suppose. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Whether that's cathartic or whether that's a kind of a practical solution. Sorry, say, say that again. Whether that's, you know, catharsis or, or whether right. that's a, imagining a kind of possible practical solution. And I yeah, saw, probably both. Yeah, I saw a, a quote. It was not to do with, with science fiction or, or post-apocalyptic fiction. It was to do with DIY the other day. But it was saying DIY is a really, it's, it's um, it, it does, one of the, the great things about it is that it doesn't replicate kind of oppressive or exclusive structures that already exist and I thought that it really kind of it was when I was researching this and I thought it really um reminded me of the kind of the the positive potential of of post-apocalyptic fiction or you know science fiction or or whatever mm. as, as a way to uh imagine a future that doesn't where these structures don't exist or how that might work um mm. Mm. So. yeah yeah definitely uh, I think that's you know the great thing about literature really that it has that capacity to do make us take us beyond the world that we're in and imagine new ways of doing things yeah and I you know I get the idea from from the research that I've done for this that that women have you know a, a greater um yeah motivation to do that really and that leads to actually some really really interesting work that that often goes beyond the kind of established uh, genre conventions or, or, or yeah. conventions of, of definitely. Well, they're less invested in the status quo, aren't they? Yeah, women writers and women generally, and other um, yeah people who are not benefiting from society as it's currently organised. Yeah, and um, so uh, fine. My final question is: is I want to ask you about, uh, you, I guess more broadly, your work. But so aside from uh, women's post-apocalyptic fiction you, you've written and contributed to books on 20th century women novelists and British women's writing um, and uh, I think one called Scandalous Fictions which mm. is really interesting 
Um, and what struck me about all of these topics, as well as the ones we've already talked about, um, was that they were all kind of to some extent concerned with cultural crisis and specifically women's literature that deals with cultural crisis and societal crisis. Do you think that's fair to say? Um, and if it is, what is it that draws you to these themes and what do you find interesting? What can we learn from them? Yeah, I think that's a really perceptive comment, although it wasn't something I'd realised myself. So again, thank you. Um, I think what I'd say is that I want to look at literature that's important, um, that's done something important in the world. Mm. So as I said earlier, if I didn't believe in the relevance and importance of literature in society and culture more widely, I, I kind of wouldn't be doing what I do. Um, I think reading is so important. People read because they want to think about what's going on. And of course, that includes thinking about the past in order to process the present. So, you know, I'm not saying you when I say that um, I'm interested in literature that's relevant and that's done something important. That doesn't mean I'm not interested in looking at literature from earlier periods either. Um, but I think that as a woman, I'm interested in women's experience and they're writing about that experience, not in any essentialist way. So, you know, I'm not saying that a woman has to be um any particular kind of thing or, or you know it's not an, a definition that that relies on anything from biology or anything like that I just think that women are thinking and writing from a different position socially and culturally than men mm. and so they've got a different stance a different perspective on the thing the things that are going on in the world um, and I think it's just important that we recognize and take note of that really mm. wonderful Thank you. Um, yeah, I guess we'll, we'll wrap it up there. But thank you so much for for talking about your work. It's been you're really welcome. It's been great to chat. Yeah, um, and uh, yeah, given me actually so much to think about. So thank you. <laughs> this has been a podcast from the Leeds Library. Links to more information about our guests and any works talked about can be found in the description. If you'd like to find out more about the Leeds Library and any of our upcoming events, please visit our website at www.theleedslibrary.org.uk or you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook at The Leeds Library. Thank you for listening and keep your eyes and ears peeled for more Tales from the Leeds Library in our future episodes released every Wednesday.